You're listening to High Net Purpose with Joe McCarthy, where we are on a mission to uncover how leaders across different industries are allocating financial, human and intellectual capital in a responsible and purposeful way. Today, we're speaking to David Goldberg, founder and CEO of Founders Pledge, a nonprofit organization focused on helping entrepreneurs and high net worth individuals use their capital as a force for good. In other words, philanthropy. Practically speaking, upon joining Founders Pledge, each member commits to donate a percentage of their future exit liquidity to charity. That's the money they make when they sell their business with Founders Pledge then helping to guide their giving journey through a mixture of detailed charity research and philanthropic advising. Stay tuned as we delve into the world of social entrepreneurship, philanthropy, climate change, creating a community of entrepreneurs and learn how to do the most good with your capital. This is our final podcast of 2023. We're looking to end it on a real high note and I hope you enjoy the conversation. David Goldberg, pleasure to have you on the High Net Purpose podcast uh, on a rainy afternoon in Soho. Uh, sounds like the start of a Shane McGowan song, uh, Rest in Peace. Um, so we're here at the Red Bull Studios, um, hoping that we'll have an adrenaline-filled conversation. Um, so we, we met um, a while back through a, a client at Island Bridge, and I've got to know you a bit over the time. And uh, um, I've got to know that you're highly intelligent. You're Thank you powers of persuasion are awesome um you are also highly um resilient in having built the business that you have during a difficult period with covid etc um so i'm really looking forward to the conversation today to get to get into the uh into some of the background and what you do and um in terms of a final podcast for 2023 um talking about purpose this is um, the best that we could possibly hope for. So thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me and for doing this. Uh, pleasure. So um, you launched Founders Pledge in 2015. You've got over 1,800 members, 10 billion committed to charity, of which close to a billion has already been donated. Uh, offices in London, Berlin, New York, San Francisco. That's right. It's a, uh, bit, it's a bit more than a billion now, actually. I think is it? We last spoke, yeah. Has actually gone into the charities through through what you do. That's right. Um, it's amazing, and we will talk through the model of how it works. Um, but can you tell us about David pre-2015? So we'll go way back then, I guess. Okay. So I, I'm from California originally, a very sort of working-class family, normal childhood, you could say. Um, but I sort of realized quite early on in my life that, you know, if, well, at least I thought as yeah. a a young person that if my parents just had more money, life would be better. They'd be happier. We'd be happier. Yeah. And I sort of decided um, when I was in my teens that I was going to go make a lot of money because that was going to drive happiness. So I dropped out of high school when I was 17 to go start that journey. Got a job when I was 18 in finance. And that was like a, a, like a pretty formative couple of years. Because uh, dropping out of high school when you're 17, was that very unusual where you came from. Right. Yeah. Okay. Not the norm at all. Okay. But it but it was uh I didn't really enjoy it. It was clear that I didn't enjoy it. I wasn't I wasn't nailing high school basically. Okay. Yeah. Um but I was ambitious and driven and um hungry and I talked my way into a job at a at a private bank in in LA when wow. I was 18. Okay. Which I you know happened to be pretty good at doing what I was doing. Spent 3 years there. Um really cut my teeth on something that was quite hard. Yeah. These days it would be called like a toxic workplace, but back then it was just like what it was. Yeah. And um, uh, in 20, 
2005, end of 2005, I realized that if I didn't get out of this place that I was going to spend the rest of my working life there. And it seems not very nice and not very enjoyable as a thing. Yeah. Anyway, I'm going to make a long story much shorter. I moved yep. to Europe for the first time. Yeah. Uh, never having left the US before. Ended up in Berlin in 2006. Started a business there, sort of by accident, solving a need that I faced you know, when I moved. And yep. um, a couple of years later, I sold it and found myself um, with more than I needed in a very lucky position. And actually, like the through line of most of my life, I find has been luck. Um, yeah. Uh, and, you know, when you talk to very successful entrepreneurs, that also happens to be a thing that, you know, pervades most successful journeys. And it's not that luck drives everything. It's yeah. that luck plays a really consequential role for um, a lot of a lot of success out there. And, and this luck basically meant that I, you know, had a better a better lot in life, a better start to life than a lot of people have. Yeah. And that carried me through into, you know, selling this business and. Founders Pledge is a direct result of that success and the and the problems that I faced in trying to give away money to charity thoughtfully. Um, and yeah. And so, because talking to you, you um, you know, you are in the philanthropy charity sector per se. Yeah. But it's like talking to an economist quite often in terms of how you to, are a investment consultant in terms of asset allocation, how you look at what you do, et cetera. Yeah. And that became sort of self-thought over those years. Is that... Yeah, I mean, I, I think there was some really obvious um, synergies and similarities mm. between how one thinks about, you know, running a business and sort of commercial commercialization and sort of economies of scale and efficiencies in running a business and how we <clears throat> can also think about philanthropy. Like these are very similar um, endeavors. Yeah. When you invest money, you invest to drive alpha, to make more return all equal. Um, and we use like our brains and numbers to inform decision-making and, 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 and charity often isn't that way. Yeah. And, I, and I thought that there was this interesting opportunity to take a more quantitative approach. I wasn't the only person who started to think this way at about this time. So can you help me sort of market map who's in your sector? Cause we've got giving pledge, we've got 1% fine. How does it sort of fit together? How, how... Yeah. So the giving pledge, I think, is one of the OGs, like okay. the really early um, people in this pledge space. Yeah. And started by uh, Bill and Melinda Gates and Warren Buffett as a as a commitment for billionaires to make that allows them to commit at least half their net wealth over their lifetime. Okay. They do so in a in a public letter that's morally binding um, and and sort of publicly enforced in, in a sense. Um, and that sort of started this trend that pledging is a thing that's worth doing. Probably five or six years ahead of Founders Pledge starting is when the, the giving pledge started. Pledge 1% and the sort of various 1% pledges started in Israel with Tamura and in Colorado with Entrepreneurs Foundation of Colorado, sort of amalgamated into this broader 1% movement championed by Mark Benioff and Pledge 1%. And Pledge 1% is focused on companies and getting companies to commit 1% of their product, 1% of their employees' time, yeah. and 1% of their either profit or equity to philanthropy um, in the form of foundations often. Um, and this is focused on companies. Yeah. And Founders Pledge uh, is focused on individuals. Um, so it's not focused on billionaires. No. But it, you have a few billionaires on, yeah. on your roster. So it's um, focused on getting individuals, founders of technology companies, to commit a percentage of their future potential exit to go to charity. Okay. And the idea basically is that it's much more difficult to commit to give away money when the 
dollars, pounds, zeros are in your bank account, especially when there's a lot of zeros there. It feels yeah. like taking a pound of flesh often, unless you're like a billionaire, in which case it becomes a necessary thing to do. But for everyone else, yeah, it um, it often is uh, hard at that point point in time to think about like, okay, how do I give back? And so my idea was, let's get people that have high wealth potential to commit to give back before they've actually made anything while they're still on the journey yeah when we you know we really discount the future like quite strongly yeah so it's easy to give away five ten fifteen percent of something you haven't yet made got it okay so it is um it's when they exit when they sell the business they've before then made this commitment to give x percent to charity that's right how did you figure out what the right number was well we didn't get it right at the start okay Um, yeah I always thought 10% was the right number, but I tested that amongst a group of people and uh, the feedback I got was, wow, that seems like a, a lot, like a pretty punchy percentage really early on. Okay. So we started as a, a, to have a floor at 2%. And we, you know, we would say, this was a, a good learning, like you commit at least 2% of your personal exit proceeds to charity. Yeah. Wouldn't you know it? Like the vast majority of people pledge 2% because we anchored 2%, 2% in the that. actual yeah. pitch. When we stopped using 2%, pledges went higher. So we've since increased the minimum um, and it's now 5%, but the average pledge today is like almost 13%. Almost 13% of the value of the business that they will sell in the Not the value of the business, the value of their percentage of that. Got it. Personal stake in it. Okay. So so was that the purpose of the business in day one or has it evolved? No. I mean, I think the, the pledge mechanism was always in service of something else. Like yeah. The, the, the purpose of the business was to help people give better. The idea being that giving better is a thing that can affect the world positively and the people within it positively. And the personal driver for you to do this was what? I, I know you saw a need, but was there something bigger driving it? Or? Well, I think, I think like most entrepreneurs, when they look at a problem, they ask, how big is the problem? Yeah. And like, what does the potential solution look like? And if we solve this problem, what does it, what does it mean? If you start a, a business that makes money, like a, a startup, yeah. then it's, what's your TAM? Yeah. How, how, how many people can you sell to? And how much is that market worth? Yeah. Um, and I did a similar exercise thinking about what is the, the TAM of ph- philanthropy of charity? How much money gets donated every year? And TAM is total available market. That's right. Just because we've had some criticism for us using too many acronyms. Too much jargon. On the, on the, so yeah, so, so what's the size of the, of the giving that's taking place globally? It's enormous. Yeah. Right? Like tens of billions of dollars per year from individual giving. Yeah. Um, hundreds of billions, like a like low hundred billion. Yeah. Um, from total foundations, government aid going into the impact sector. Like it's a crazy amount of money. And there's 10 million charities on the planet. And many people give to charity, like many, many. There's not actually clear numbers on how many yeah. individuals give to charity every year, but we assume that it's more than half the global population of the global north. Yeah. And uh, and often it's done really poorly, not out of any intent to do it per- poorly, but because it's quite difficult to do well. So I've heard you say before that you, your purpose is to eradicate market failure. Mm. Is that a sort yeah. of posh way of describing what you've said there, where the, no. where the market might be failing slightly and you're looking to... No, that, I think I think eradicating market failure is like a personal mission is, yeah. is is my personal mission. What Founders Pledge is trying to do is empower entrepreneurs to do immense good and really affect the world positively as a result. And that means, you know, using their resources to help 
to help as much as possible make and the world better. And entrepreneurs as well, you've chosen that uh, group because they solve difficult problems. They do. And right? Like every business solves a problem in some way. Yeah. We can debate whether those problems are worth solving, but yeah. successful businesses solve problems and make money solving problems. And entrepreneurs, as people who have had success, like successful entrepreneurs who pledged, yeah. have the capacity, having sold a business often, yeah. to focus their energy on solving other problems that maybe aren't going to be um, uh, solved by businesses or through through markets. And philanthropy has this really important role to play in stepping in where markets can't and governments won't to to affect um, you know real market failures and distribution problems. But so, do you think we've got a generalized issue with how charity works or philanthropy operates probably yeah i think that it's just not done with the same rationality with which yeah. we approach investing often okay if it was done in that in that way then we we wouldn't really have extreme poverty anymore like there's enough resources on the planet as, as it currently exists to go around for everyone yeah it's an allocation problem so um um what market failures are we seeing within philanthropy and charity today that you think can can be addressed through what your organization does? Well, I'd say that the market failures are, you know, addressable potentially by philanthropy, but the market failures themselves are failures of the market. I think climate change is one of the, the great market failures of our time. We have not priced in the externalities of doing business. Yeah. And it means that we're, we aren't really bearing the true cost of using fossil fuels in every facet of modern life. Yeah. We just aren't. And because of that, because we don't internalize these externalities, um, the market is failing. And the result is we're increasingly, um, the, the, the planet is becoming increasingly less habitable. So you've got a research team of how many people? There are 11 now. 11 people. And um, you've, uh, you've done work on climate change. We have. And uh, what's wrong with, with planting trees? Nothing's wrong with planting trees. The, yeah. the question we ask is, what is the, the best way or what is yeah. the least expensive way to affect this problem the most? Yes. So planting trees is great. Plant trees. Okay. But don't just plant trees. Right? Yeah. Um, and when you think about philanthropy, um, often the question I ask our members is, is this the best that we can do with the resources that we have? And, um, and to, to answer that question, you need to ask a bunch of others, like, what does the best mean? What does impact mean? What are the areas that you're working in? What, over what time horizon and over what risk appetite? So, so we try to take the approach that yeah. money can be deployed strategically yeah. in the same way that money can be invested strategically yeah. to see returns. So on the, on the climate change side, you, how have you looked at approaching it with some of your um, yeah. donors or the pledgers. Yeah. Um, so we've tried to understand where we can have a, a meaningful influence on the climate, yeah. given that it's become a pretty important and well-understood issue for everyone. Yeah. Um, climate philanthropy uh, is um, is on the order of $4 billion, I believe, in, in the U.S. this last, in 2022. Okay. And uh, our members have committed you know, $10 billion in all, uh, of which a billion has actually come due. So of which a percentage of that is allocated towards climate. So it's like not a very huge amount of money in the scheme just yeah. of uh, U.S. climate philanthropy. Yeah. So given that we have much less money in relative terms, we need to figure out how to use that money so that we can punch much you know, above our weight, 
basically. And so that's trying to find these opportunities that have extreme leverage in them where um, other philanthropists aren't funding the, yeah. the potential for um, to, to, to move the, the needle in a meaningful way. Um, and often this um, focuses on policy, policy advocacy, advancing innovation economies, paradigm shaping, um, and, uh, and ensuring that uh, as we go to solve many of these climate issues using yeah. technology, we are creating the right incentives for investors and the, the 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 pure capital markets to pour money into nascent industries and nascent sectors so that they can become more well developed and cheaper with time and, and scale. Because your team is quite data driven and um, very very data driven. So when you look at the issue of climate change, sort of summarize rather than just going for the low hanging fruit or where there's plenty of other capital going at the moment, you're looking for where there can be a multiplier effect, yes, a leveraged effect on the money that um, the donors are putting in. Yeah. To those we we want to work in spaces that other people aren't. Um, can you give us some other areas where where your team have gone with the research? Yeah, I mean, so there's there's a, a couple of interesting spaces. Like um, if you look at global health and development, a lot of money is spent on um, uh, water and sanitation. Super yeah. important area. Everyone needs clean water. No, no debate about this. A lot of money is spent on education. Many of the educational projects that are being done in low and middle income countries are about providing books to students or teachers or providing infrastructure for learning. And these are all good and well. But the question is not, is this a thing that we should do? But what is the most important thing that we can do to advance educational outcomes? And when you approach it from that perspective and start from like a first principles yeah. um, exploration, it turns out that you know teachers and books and infrastructure is good, but what's better is just ensuring children are healthy enough to actually go to school. Okay. One of the big um, depressors of learning outcomes happen to be just kids don't show up often because they're sick. And one of the great drivers of not school non-attendance is neglected tropical diseases, often in the form of parasitic worms, that we just don't have an issue with in the global north and high, yeah. high income countries because we don't. But you know, 800 million people have a neglected tropical disease right now, and 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 many of them are kids. And when you are too sick to go to school, then you're not going to learn, even if there's teachers there, even if there's better books there. And so, um, one of the best ways to affect learning outcomes, it turns out, is to deworm kids so that they can attend school more. And um, you've also looked at more sort of existential risk type stuff. And um, can you give us a feel for some of that? And I think in in 2019, you'd also yeah, pre-pandemic. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we we try to think across a couple of different vectors or sort of philosophical viewpoints. One being like we really care about the people that are alive today, like everyone that's alive today, and all of the issues of you know current humans are important. Yeah, everything from global health and development to mental health to education to um, arts and culture. These are all sort of current generation issues. Yeah, we also care about the scale of animal suffering, often in the form of factory farming, animal welfare. We think it's like, a, like a often a, like a, a morally uh, a huge moral area that we overlook in our day to day lives. Like the yeah. meat system is what it is, and we're trying to affect that so that animals live better lives. Uh, and then the third perspective is thinking about the future and ensuring that the future happens in a way that is good for the people that are alive at that point. And this takes us into often challenging areas like global catastrophic risks. What could go wrong? Mm -hmm. And so we did. We, we have been thinking about this space for a long time, since the very early days of Founders Pledge. And I wrote a research report in 2019 
focusing on existential risks, things that have the potential to derail or potentially extinct humanity. And among those is um, biological risks and biosafety, biosecurity, advanced um, AI, um, nuclear war, and great power conflict. So our, our report back in 2019 focused on biosecurity as an area that is deeply underinvested in, calling out specifically pandemic preparedness as a an area that is ripe for philanthropic capital, mostly because it's just so neglected compared yeah. to other issues, such that pre-pandemic, um, the entire budget for the UN uh group that was focusing on pandemic preparedness was less than the budget of an average McDonald's franchise for the globe. Wow. Everyone. And uh, that's not very much money. And so you know, this pr presents an opportunity for philanthropists to step in to fund things that governments aren't. And other philanthropists aren't focusing on because it's a tail risk. Like it's a, a lot of things have to go a specific way for a pandemic to happen. Yeah. But they do happen pretty reliably over the course of time, in fact. And so we had been adv advocating for pandemic preparedness work and had been funding it for a long time now. So funding the Center for Health Security, Johns Hopkins, and and other uh, institutions that are providing the sort of, the, that have provided the infrastructure during the pandemic for information to disseminate quickly across uh, across government. Um, how involved do the founders get in the, uh, in the, in the work and the research that you do? If at all. Often quite involved, right? Okay. And, but it, it, it depends on the person and, and their situation. You know, entrepreneurs are a bit like cats. Like everyone is different. They have their own perspectives. They do things at their own pace in their own way. So of the 1,850 members we have, there'll be 1,850 strategies. Yeah. And, and on one hand, you have someone delegating, a, like perhaps a, a wealth manager saying, hey, make all the decisions for me. I trust you guys. You have a track record. I believe what you believe. And on the other hand, someone who wants to dig in at the very granular level and read the reports, look at the cost effectiveness analysis in the back end, approve each sp specific grant, speak to the grantees. Like it's, it's a spectrum and, you know, it, it, it's also a, quite a normal distribution. So the, there's a small number of people that have one end, yeah. like, and there's a small number of people that are, you know, want, want to be in every, every bit of the weeds. Most people are in the middle. Somewhere. And with some of your members, you will actually help them think about what they're looking to achieve, what the purpose of this um, yeah. uh, granting is going to be. Yeah. Um, what does that process look like? How do you get them to um, where they want to go? Um, and do you, do you allow them to sort of go the way they want or do you sort of push them to what you guys think? Yeah. I mean, the whole point of our model is to help people be their most effective selves. Yeah. It's not to impose our, our, our will or our viewpoint on them, but it's to sort of consciously complicate conversations so that we can find better outcomes as a result. So if you can expect that someone has a, you know, existing solution set the size of a grapefruit, right? Like yeah. that's, it, that's the entirety of the solutions that they can, can consider and think about. I'd like to challenge the assumptions that underlie that solution set to understand actually is it bigger? Is it the size of a basketball or maybe even bigger, like the size of a, a you know, a globe? Um, and so we start by asking, you know, what are the things that you value? Um, and often people are thrown by that question. Like, well, what do you mean? What do I value? I value lots of things. So yeah. Like we, we dig in and we ultimately do some version of 20 questions or a hundred questions until we get to the real root of the value system that these, that our members live by. And it's interesting to see that often husbands and wives or partners um, think they have very similar values, 
until you get down to the really intrinsic layer, the sort of the root of it all. And it turns out they actually are quite a bit different, even if they seem very similar at the very top. And so we try to get to that sort of intrinsic value set, the values that they want to impart on their kids so that their kids go forward and lead good lives um, so that we can then optimize for those values rather than the, the necessarily the sort of top of mind lived experience that is subject to all of the biases that we like deal with every day, like the saliency and recency biases, the, you know, uh, the, the, the things that mean that they aren't actually living their truest sort of purpose. So you've gone there from almost like a economist data focused team to, I don't know, psychologists, sociologists trying to find out what the intrinsic motivations are. Um, so you'll use the lists, you'll challenge them on their thinking. Yeah. We want to expand um, the solution set so that at yeah. the end of the day, they've started in somewhere small and they've expanded somewhere big. And sometimes the, our, our members have like very specific views that despite going through this process remain unchanged. And, and that just means they have a very clear sense of what they care about. We can optimize for that as well. And any, any trends or patterns in terms of the intrinsic drivers for the cohort of members that you... Yeah. I mean, a lot of our members hew towards similar sorts of ideals. Um, it's one of the reasons that we can do what we do because, you know, it's like the 80-20, right? There's going to be outliers here, but the, the, the majority of the population sits within a relatively small space. And is it possible to describe them across a few themes or actually yeah. it's quite a lot? It's, it, it's, it's not an insignificant amount, but like the things yeah. that I, I often find resonate with me are like a, a, a quality of opportunity. The idea that, you know, everyone should start from equal footing or the idea that education is an enabler that um that that means that people can go on to do great things when they have access to it freedom of movement or agency um the the ability to like live in 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 a world where they aren't curtailed by the government um that inhibits their ability to be happy these are some some of the things that like sort of there are constants yeah. in there um you used the term earlier on impact alpha mm-hmm. and uh, in the investment space alpha is usually outperformance above the uh, benchmark that's right so what you're saying is that um you think it's possible through your research to get better impact than other people who donate well yeah I, absolutely i'd say that that's like the underlying um value proposition for why people join founders Club, or at least one of them which is if you could go on your own as a single person or as a family and do the same thing as a team of 64, then that's special and you should, right? But often you can't, not just because um, there's only two of you or three of you or even four, let's say four generously, but because you also have other interests and other things and you're sort of focusing your energy on stuff that is makes you happy. It's the reason why people work with Island Bridge, like this, the same reason, because you're experts, you have a track record, you've demonstrated that track record and you're better allocators uh, and better uh, better allocators of capital and more efficient with your time as a collective than any one of your clients could be on their own. They trust you to make decisions because you're better at it. And in the same way, you know, we are a big team that brings um, a very quantitative, rational first approach to understand how their philanthropic dollars can produce the biggest impact return. Um, by thinking about investing in philanthropy differently, we are doing a disservice to the world and a disservice to our philanthropy because it is the same basic concept, input to output. It's 
obviously you've got the capability to gather assets in your space yeah. in a, an amazing way. Um, um, uh, then you're able to work uh, with the members to define what they're looking to achieve. Um, uh, we can see uh, through some of the papers that are out there publicly how you guys have um, very cleverly, smartly um, um, come up with some great thesis around sort of more kind of macro things into micro and how it can be affected. Um, but I was to push, if I was to push you on the impact alpha of choosing organization that the money's going to go to, how, how can you differentiate in that space? And any examples that, yeah, uh, sure. if it's possible to talk to. So we build um, cost effectiveness analyses for every charity that we recommend. Um, not, let's not even call it a charity. Let's say every funding opportunity that we recommend. And the nature of our model is such that um, funding opportunities become more or less valuable or impactful based on how much capacity they have to absorb more capital. So in the same way, so think of it as that you can only put so much money into an organization before it ceases to be able to use your next dollar effectively. Okay. A diminishing return on the next diminishing amount of money. Diminishing returns. That's exactly right. So you can overfill a pot and have it spill over and the, and yeah. the water go to waste. Yeah. Or you can fill it just right Yeah. and, and have it be perfect. And so our goal here is to find the, the, the best marginal dollar use for each opportunity and to fill it exactly to that amount and no further. And when something becomes fully funded, what once was the most high impact thing perhaps on the planet no longer becomes that no no longer is that at least for that moment in time for this year because um there's no more counterfactual value that we can create and so we don't talk about effective charities because it makes a value judgment about a charity and that's not we're not in the business of doing that we make um claims about the effectiveness of a specific type of intervention a funding opportunity and so we look at funding opportunities and benchmark them against um, a very good nonprofit called Give Directly. They do um, unconditional crash, cash transfers to the ultra poor and low and middle income countries. Um, it's a, a very, very good nonprofit that does sort of pioneering work and has for many years now. And we look to charities that are uh, can perform better from a cost effectiveness perspective than Give Directly can. And um, and, and what that means is we we talk about units of give directly equivalent dollar, you know, impact. So it gives some context for yeah. understanding multiples, basically. Okay, okay. Um, and uh, and in terms of the organizations, what 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 can they expect in terms of you know due diligence and interrogation by David and the team? Certainly not by David, but by okay, mostly by the team. Yeah. Um, so we um, spend most of our energy in advance. Of making a grant to understand what what we think the outcome of that grant will be, um, we do like modeling. We talk to the charity. We, we first sort of look at the cause area, the entirety of the space. Um, so by the time we get to a funding recommendation, we will have gone from a cause area investigation that says this is a space worth putting energy and resource into. That looks at the size of the space, the neglectedness of of it, given sort of the funding environment globally and the tractability we think of that that space like do we think we can fund solutions that will work we then look at interventions we look to the, the, the academic literature and the research that's been done to understand the impact that is created across uh, various interventions and this is from the perspective of often hybrid metrics like quality adjusted life years or disability adjusted life years and these are outcomes rather than outputs 
um, we we look to um, uh, things that are more cost effective than less. And once we've identified a type of intervention, then we identify charities implementing that intervention in a market that's necessary. So by the time we've gotten to the charity and we dig into like quite quite a bit of depth with that organization, we will have spent six months thinking about this space and, and the intervention landscape within it. So by the time we get to a funding recommendation, we've spent 300 human hours thinking about it and writing about it and modeling it. And then and then then we do all of the legal technical diligence to ensure that we can grant to it and that the organization is well run, they're transparent, they have safeguarding policies, all of the very standard due diligence stuff that every um, grant maker is going to do. But to get to the point where we think that this is worth funding, it's like an order of magnitude more time than almost everyone else. So the um, I see a variety of different philosophies as to how much measurement and how much you should target or restrict actual um, uh, donations that you're making. So I guess the first question is, do you then put lots of KPIs around them can that create a sort of Schrodinger's cat type thing where you're measuring for the wrong thing? Uh, and then secondly, um, will you say, we'll give you this money, but you have to use it for this purpose? We don't for We don't give restricted funding typically. By the okay. time we've identified a nonprofit, we have faith and belief that that nonprofit is going to use the money as a as effectively as possible given their needs. And so we, we are um, averse to uh, conditional funding and restricted funding in the same way that People want to support Founders Pledge. If they want to make it conditional, we thank them very much for their interest in our work, but we de politely decline conditional funding and restricted funding for our own operational expenses. Because it basically says, I know better than you. When when we we spend all of our time and energy doing this thing, and when nonprofits spend all of their time and energy doing this thing, we've established that the sort of criteria that go into how this non nonprofit operate are good. They're sound. They're operating in the right area with the right intervention in the right way. Then we don't really, we can't really understand the day-to-day -day context of their of, of an environment in which they work to say you can and can't do these things. So uh, al al almost always um, unrestricted. Um, and then thinking about KPIs, we've built the model in advance, so we know what we want to see coming out of it, and that sort of informs that we recommend this opportunity to fund. So we can a year on say we've given you. $7 million to do this thing, have you done it? What, what, what's not gone right? What's gone really well? Were the assumptions that we had and that you had incorrect? What pieces of this logic chain didn't happen in the way that we had expected them to? And we can go through this process and say, oh, you know, they delivered exactly the thing that they said they were going to do and exactly the way that they said they were going to do it. But this one thing changed, and it means that our estimate was wrong positively or negatively, and it happens in both directions. We're wrong, but often the margin of error is relatively small. So um, the mechanisms for actually donating, yeah. um, uh, DAFs, donor-advised funds, yeah. foundations, other, um, can you give us some color for where you, where, where you think the differences and the benefits of, um, of, of each are? Sure. I'll start by saying that I have a bias here, um, and it's uh, one worth calling out. I think donor-advised funds for the vast majority of people, even extremely, extremely wealthy ones, are the best vehicle for giving. Um, they are like having your own foundation, but within an existing public charity that absorbs almost all of the, the grant-making burden, the regulatory and compliance burden um, on your behalf 
in exchange for a fee often. So, uh, what is a donor advised fund? A, a DAF is a, it a corporate entity? Is a, a trust DAF, entity? Is DAF it? is a public charity in the U.S. or a registered charity in the U.K. Yeah, that has um, charitable status and and it is willing to accept donations from individuals, um, and it gives those individuals rights to recommend funding opportunities, like grants to fund um, for the, for that nonprofit. So they technically um, relinquish total control over their assets. They've received a tax benefit for that often. And then they have a ring-fenced account within that charity's books that they can do their grant-making through. Okay. And that if, they, if they're not investing at all in one year, they can invest it while it's in the DAF as well? That's right. Yeah. So they, they get the tax break when they put the money in. Mm-hmm. Um, they then um, can, uh, I guess, is administration benefits from this versus? Very much so, yeah. Okay. And then, uh, so, so, and and you can decide where you want the money to go from your account. You can you can make you can make recommendations, and the donor advised fund has to go through its own diligence process to ensure that those are acceptable things to fund. Okay. And most of the time, they are. Okay. Um, so there's lots of donor advised funds out there. Not all of them are the same. Yeah. Not all of them are equally good or bad. Um, we operate a donor advised fund that was built to be different than every everyone else's in that it has the right incentives. So. Almost every other donor-advised fund that I'm aware of, and there are a couple of exceptions, charge fees based on assets under management. And from the donor-advised fund's perspective, like the more assets that they have in their um, custody, the more fees they make. Right. So obviously the incentive is more assets. Um, that's also the wrong incentive to have often, because if you're giving money to charity or getting tax relief for having given money to, to charity then that tax relief is so that the charity can go out into the world and do good things. Mm. And um, most donor-advised funds are not enabling that to happen at the scale that they could. The donor-advised fund that Founders Pledge operates is available to our members, and it's a zero cost. So we don't charge fees based on AUM. We don't charge fees full stop. And we do this because it creates the incentive for us as an organization to get the money out the door as opposed to sit on it um, because it makes us money. And uh, any advantages that a foundation would have that in the U.S. Uh, maybe so um, private foundations have uh, less good tax treatment for donations overall, and they also have uh, distribution requirements per year. So in a, in a private foundation in the U.S., you actually have to give five percent of your total assets per year out the door. Um, but it means that you can give to a a slightly wider array of things. Um, at, like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is. A private foundation, um, even though it has tens of billions of dollars of assets, um, and, and for Bill and Melinda, this made sense for, for many people. Um, it seems to, but there's also like an interesting cottage industry around private foundations. They're not inexpensive to set up. They're not inexpensive to run, and a lot of intermediary, you know, professional service organizations, accountancies, law firms, family offices set up foundations because it. Billable hours, fees, and they're not always the right thing. So you know, we need to be asking the question of like, why? Why am I doing this thing? This named foundation, is it because it's the right thing to do for my grant making, or because I just don't have the energy to think about it, and I'm trusting this professional service provider who's making money from doing it? Wouldn't be the first time. Um, of course, on the High Net Purpose podcast, we do not provide um, tax advice. Certainly so, not. No. So uh, uh, you talk to your tax advisor before you do any of this planning. Please um, plan anything I've said is tax. Uh, can you give us a sense of where the next few years will take 
founders pledge and actually maybe before we go this so you do have some like funds where people can uh put money into a specific cause area yes um you've got the donor advised funds you will work with the um uh with the members entrepreneurs as well on the on the gifting you convene a lot of people globally at lots of events as well is that right that's right so it's worth sort of double clicking quickly on the funds. So the donor advised fund is like this overarching structure that people can do all of their grant making with, whether it be into very specific charities or into big pots or pooling capital. Like the donor advised fund is the overarching grant making vehicle that most of our members use. And we've set up uh, four pooled thematic funds for philanthropy. And so these are, if, if you remember the spectrum, right? On one hand, someone totally outsources all of their giving to us. On the other hand, they make every decision themselves. The fund sits somewhere towards the um, outsourced model, where it basically allows people to pool capital into a, a fund focused on a specific thing like climate change or global health and well-being. Um, get a, you know hopefully a, a large amount of money in this fund, and then our fund managers allocate that capital as and when it's most necessary to affect the the, the, the issue area positively. So this means that we can do more sophisticated, longer term, often more impactful grant making, because we aren't going to drive consensus for every decision. Like if we want to fund a, a nonprofit, uh, a giving opportunity, because we think it's the very best thing in the world to do at that point, without pooled fund that we can deploy, we have to go to individuals and say, hey, we think you should fund this. Hey, we think you should fund this. And it like 10x is the time required to actually deploy yeah. capital. But the, these sort of pooled funds are let's say like the best way to drive impact. So um, so if, if you're a member, you don't have to use any of this infrastructure, nope. but it's all available to you should you um, want uh, to access some research or to be able to uh, to, to use them. Um, um, so so what else is going to... Oh, actually, just on the... on the When you bring entrepreneurs together, because I guess that's quite a big yeah. thing too, isn't it? When uh, yeah. um, you've got a, a group of people who are in pursuit of what they're purposes and what they're going to do with their with their capital um convening them i guess generates unexpected outcomes sometimes for sure i mean it's often it's going to sound silly to say but it's often like pretty lonely being the uh, the ceo or founding a company and like it's a pretty specific type of loneliness um it's not to say that like other it's, it's better or worse than other types it's just like it's a specific journey that people go on. I get it. And, yep. um, and so bringing people together who are not on, not only on this specific journey, but are, have also committed to give back of their success um, means that we're bringing together a really value aligned group of people, often from really different backgrounds and providing them the context and the safe space to explore, like, what does success actually mean? Is it, It's not really, you know, the size of the yacht. Or that I fly, or that they fly privately, or whatever it is. It's like, how can we affect the world positively? And it's and it's almost always better to do things in community than it is to do it alone. Mm. Um, and so one of the things that we aim to do is coordinate our members for better decision making, so that rather than a single person focusing on the climate crisis, and another single person focusing on the climate crisis, and twenty five other more single people focusing on the climate crisis by themselves, we can create a community of people aligned commun like communicating and moving in the same direction with the same pace and is it is it workshop or is it sort yeah of so we do we do about 30 events per year these tend to be small dinners 15 to 20 people uh, we do a couple of retreats per year that are multi-day 
we do workshops, we um, do socials, um, we have book club calls, and, and lots of lots of things that bring our members together in in ways that are um, meant to you know create this sort of openness and um, and safety. And for, for you personally, the um, the interaction with the entrepreneurs versus working with uh, with the, the the charities, etc. Where, where, where do you where do you enjoy most? Depends on the day. I mean, I I, I quite like I quite like a lot of it. Um, thankfully, right? It's nice to enjoy your job most of the time. Um, but I I think I find particular energy from helping people actually make you know decisions about where to give, because often I've been with them on this journey for years, right? Like started nine years ago with just me, right? And I've met well, the I met the majority of our members over the course of time, and you know more than half of them I, I I signed up myself and so like that there's a, a nice sort of full circle element with you talk to someone when they've just raised a series a seven years ago and then they sold their company last year for 500 million dollars and they're like I never thought I would but here you have it now I'm actually gonna I'm actually gonna give money away and I know it, it wasn't clear that I was ever going to and it's a really nice um so you, help people figure that out so you get the whatsapp message that hits to say Great news! We've just sold, and yeah, we're going to go through with what we pledged. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty amazing. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So, um, uh, what is on the board for the future of Founders Pledge at the moment? Well, uh, more of the same. So, um, we've built a model that works. We've built infrastructure that operates at scale, and now it's just about delivering at a at a different level. I mean, um, bringing on great entrepreneurs to to, to join. Um, increasing the number of events, increasing the amount of capital that we deploy out into the world, and trying to sort of bend the curve of human progress. And are there any any uh, emergent areas of of giving that is are starting to bubble up, which are new? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a particularly excited, like, fun area to talk about, but like. We wrote about pandemic preparedness before pandemic. We yeah. wrote about great power war in advance of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and we're pretty worried about autonomous weapon systems and military AI at the moment. Um, so it's an area that we've spent a lot of time thinking about, um, a lot of work um, to identify giving opportunities. We've built a global catastrophic risks fund aimed at um, you know averting. Um, conflicts that could really affect humanity negatively, um, and it's an area that is in real need of more funding. And your membership will include key actors in that space, potentially. Yeah. And and uh, do, do do you get to um, be able to access information and insights from them as well to help the research team? Do do you, do you see that sort of coming back to you as as some of these issues become, um, you know? potential tech, technological threats? A little bit. Um, I, I, I can't think of a specific instance where we've got yeah. like, um, actionable information that has inf like changed uh, a, a study, but I, I'm also not that day-to-day -day with that, that portion of the research, but it's possible, I guess. David, thank you for what you do. Uh, I've learned a, a lot from uh, knowing you over the last while and a, a lot more today as well. So it's been a, a real privilege. I've signed the pledge. I'd yeah. encourage thank others to, to consider it um, too. Um, so thanks again for all that you do and for the, for the time you spent with us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. 
Thanks so much for listening to High Net Purpose. We hope you enjoyed it. If you like listening, make sure to like, share and subscribe to catch all news and updates. You can follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram at High Net Purpose. We've really enjoyed being able to record these podcasts during 2023. Thank you all for following and for the feedback. We've got a great roster lined up for 2024 of technologists, entrepreneurs and experts who are all looking to deal with some of the planet's greatest problems and are in the pursuit of purpose in their lives. All content on High Net Purpose is provided as general information only. It does not constitute any advice, recommendation or representation and is not intended to influence listeners or users into making any specific investments or any other decisions. Please be aware that guests and presenters on High Net Purpose may have investments in any of the topics or products being discussed. Their views and opinions are their own and should not be taken as endorsements or financial advice. Before making any investment or financial decisions, we strongly recommend seeking advice from a qualified financial professional.